SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 25 with guest Matthew Roach. Our guest today is Matthew Roach. Matthew is a data architect with systems management innovator ConfigureSoft Incorporated and is also chief software architect of Integral Thought and Memory, a business intelligence focused consultancy. Matthew has worked with Microsoft SQL Server since the mid-90s, starting with SQL Server 6 and 6.5 and has been falling deeper and deeper in love with SQL Server with each passing year. As a Microsoft Certified Trainer, Matthew has taught hundreds of database administrators and database developers how to better utilize SQL Server's capabilities, and as a software developer and architect, Matthew has built dozens of applications that use the SQL Server platform. He's been using SQL Server 2005 since its early beta days, and has been learning SQL Server 2008 since June of this year. Matthew's current focus is on the SQL Server Business Intelligence Stack, specifically SQL Server Integration Services. So welcome, Matthew. Good morning, Greg. Thank you very much for having me on the show. That's great. Well, as we normally do with the show, uh, I'll get you first up to uh, tell us how you got to be involved in SQL Server. What I should do, though, before we start is just make a, a shout-out to Chris Randall, our uh, dear friend. And uh, Chris uh, sent, sent me an email a few weeks ago saying, uh, I demand an, an integration services show. He, he, uh, some time back has been sort of chasing. We've been trying to get some integration services shows in place. So, and uh, he suggested Matthew, and I thought, yes, what a perfect choice. So, welcome, and uh, tell us how you came to be involved with SQL Server. Well, a lot of it came through my training background back in the uh, the mid '90s. I got my Microsoft Certified Trainer certification. Originally, started off doing the uh, the NT4 uh, systems administrator and network administ- administrator track, uh, teaching a lot of people uh, the the knowledge they needed to, to manage their their Windows NT4 domains, get their NT4 and CSE certifications, and so yes. on. Uh, despite the fact that I had a software development background in college, this is really what the big demand was back then. And uh, the training center that I worked for said, well, we need someone to teach this elective class, this SQL Server uh, administration class. And I had never heard of SQL Server. I'd done uh, a little bit of database work back when I was in college, but that was with Oracle. And uh, basically uh, attended the class, prepped for the class, you know, did a whole bunch of reading and research and, you know, trying to get up to speed uh, to actually teach a class on this topic that I, I knew very little about at the time. Uh, if only I had known how little I knew uh, and just totally fell in love. The, uh, the, the, the details of the platform, the sort of the dance of data under the hoods, the, uh, the, the database design, index tuning, uh, performance tuning, such as it was in those days, uh, it was just just compelling, interesting, everything that I'd always wanted. Started getting more and more into the database development side of things 
and over the next 10 years or so basically moved more and more out of the classroom, further and further away from the administration side of things, so that these days what I'm doing is uh, almost strictly uh, database development, BI development, and, and I do some upper-tier development, but I try to keep that as a, as a minimum. It tends to be that I'm happiest when I'm closest to the data, and you know, if you're not happy at work, it's time to start looking for a new job. I'm not yes. ready for that yet. <laughs> Indeed. Did, uh, if you were teaching SQL Server 6.5, did you end up doing the old performance tuning examinations that they had back then? You know, honestly, I did not. That was one hmm. of the things that was, was always on my list to do. So that was, that was a special, uh, special performance tuning and optimization SQL Server trainer only exam. Yes, that's uh, the reason I asked the question is it was a trainer only exam, that one. And, uh, I, 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 the first, one of the first exams I ever did, in fact, was the, the, uh, the equivalent exam for SQL Server 4.2. Uh, wow. which was the performance tuning one, but uh, th things were a little primitive at that stage by comparison. Yeah, well, there there honestly wasn't a lot of demand for the course, so uh, I was so busy back in those days, you know, it's, it seems like some things don't change, that mm -hmm. I really had to look and see which, uh, you know, which places I should devote my time and and teaching the, uh, what was it, uh, 867 and... Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have a brain fart on the other course number, but basically teaching those two core uh, SQL 6.5 exams and then 732 mm -hmm. and 733 with SQL Server 7.0. By the time SQL Server 2000 came out, I was doing much more hands-on development than I was training and really only focused on the development side of things. Mm -hmm. But basically... The, uh, what I was going to say, uh, those old exams, the, the thing that was intriguing about them, most people would never have seen them, but um, being a trainer-only exam, uh, they also didn't get debugged or <laughs> go through a beta phase or whatever, and uh, in fact, they were the some of the worst exams I've ever done in terms of quality because, uh, uh, for example, on, on the one that I did, uh, you needed to get, I think it was 85% right, uh, correct to pass as well so they had a very high pass mark for the the trainers but what was frustrating is that out of about 50 questions there were at least two or three i remember that you could not answer and the, the reason was they would say something like pick two of the following and then they'd give you a radio button so that there was no way to pick two of the following. <laughs> and, uh, and so you automatically get those wrong. <laughs> and the beautiful part was, of course, they only had a single exam. So if you redid it, you'd get the same questions. So just classic okay. stuff. Think about that as being the real-world equivalent or the exam equivalent of walking into a classroom that the training center's classroom setup guy set up for you. Oh, so yes. if there's nothing that you can do at that point, how are you going to handle that and still succeed? <laughs> That's wonderful. But today, integration services is what we're talking about. And I noticed we were discussing a list of what we were going to cover, and best practices seemed like a, a good topic. And so if we start through the areas that you think are best practices for integration services, so I suppose whatever we can provide tips-wise to people using it. Oh, absolutely. So this this is uh, something that I cannot take a lot of credit for, although the best practices that we're covering today uh, are, are my list. 
I actually was inspired very much by a SQL Server MVP by the name of Jamie Thompson. I don't know if you know Jamie or not, but... I know of Jamie, yes. He has has a very active blog on integration services, one one of the best and brightest voices out there in the integration services community, and... I want to say that he has 30 or so best practices out there. There's going to be a little bit of overlap between what we talk about today with what he's got out there, but for anybody who is listening to the show, definitely recommend that they check out Jamie's blog and see what he has to say as well. Okay. With that said, the first uh, the first thing that I'd like to talk about is metadata. So the, the, mm-hmm. the first bullet that I have on my little list is get your metadata right the first time, not later. And the reason for this is SQL Server Integration Services gets its performance uh, through incredibly strong typing, very very strong metadata-bound typing inside the data flow. Yes. And when, when you're working with a relational data source, when you uh, drop your source component and hook up all the downstream components to it, the integration services designers will look at that data source and pull out the, the columns, the data types, the sizes, all of that metadata that is used uh, to determine the size of the data flow buffers downstream. And one of the things that I've found is a common mistake that, that both I see other people doing and that I've done myself enough times that I'm ashamed to admit it, is having changes going on in the data source after the data flow is built. Yes. So one of, the, one of the things that I'm doing as part of my work with ConfigureSoft is building a lot of SSIS connectors that will draw information from third-party service desk systems like Mercury or Remedy or, or you know, you know uh, CA, pick, pick a source. And mm-hmm. for the most part, they tend to be hosted on Oracle, and we tend to have an iterative process where we're working with the source system experts to build up uh, a custom view to help us find where the data is. Uh, there is no standard installation of any of these software packages, so it's always a, a true discovery process. And we have uh, a relatively standard data flow that we use, but we have to tweak the top of it each time. And often I find that the the most time-consuming part is going through and getting those data types uh, finalized, cleaned, tweaked up. The designer tends to be very inflexible and non-optimized for making those sorts of changes once there are uh, uh, components downstream that use the metadata. And the thing that I have found, uh, I actually let this get past me a couple times and get into QA, so uh, the pain that I experienced has really made this stick in my mind, uh, is that if the designer offers to clean up the metadata for you, Generally, you want to say yes, but you always want to see exactly what it has cleaned. So there have been times when, uh, you know, hooking, hooking up the uh, the data source to a new view or a new select statement, and the the, the designer says, oh, the, the, the metadata has changed, it's out of sync, do you want me to clean it up for you? And as part of the cleanup, it simply removes all of the mappings between the columns inside the data flow. So yes. everything works. There are no warnings, no errors. Uh, but what you just actually no data. Have the data flow? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No data. It runs great. Performance is excellent. Mm. But it's uh, perhaps not what you wanted. So yeah. uh, I think that is a big move. Where where we had the scripting in DTS was very much a, a variant um, in v- VB script, effectively, and where it was very very loose typing and kind of anything goes really and I think one of the things I find that people do struggle with quite a bit when they first start with integration services is the precision that they're required to 
uh, have when they're dealing with the data types. I think the other thing, just to be interested in your thoughts on, is the the expression syntax that they have also, which is kind of C-like, <laughs> but uh, I think not immediately obvious either. Well, um, let me first of all say that I think that SSIS expressions are probably the single most powerful feature of integration services as a whole. Mm -hmm. uh, as a developer, uh, uh, having a place where you can put in your own logic at largely arbitrary places, the, uh, the analogy, you know, if this were .NET development, this would be like being able to develop your own, uh, your own property accessors for someone else's components. Yes. So when, when, when this property of your stuff gets evaluated here, run my logic instead. Mm. And just, just love it. Uh, huge capabilities. You can't build a real world package without them. Um, the syntax, I like to describe it as having the worst of T-SQL, C, and VB. Because it has, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it has uh, sort of a uh, an indiscriminate mix of language features from 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 those different languages, and you know it's functional once you get used to it. Uh, you know, like any other syntax, your brain can wrap itself around the syntax sooner or later. But it's certainly not the most intuitive or easy to learn uh, syntax out there, especially for someone who's just coming into integration services. Yes, indeed. Your next one on the list was using template packages wherever yep, you can. So, if not more often. Yeah. So, so the, the other thing that I find is that any real-world SSIS package uh, tends to be very complicated. And most of the things that are complicated about it are not necessarily the core thing that the package needs to do, you know, moving data from points A, B, and C to points X, Y, and Z. Yep. Uh, but they, they tend to be the, the auditing, the logistical infrastructure that you put in place around it. Most of my packages will start off with three or four different execute SQL tests where I am reading information in from uh, uh, auditing tables in a database, updating information, you know, creating new stub records in those tables, performing the data flow, and then going through to update the audit records that were just created, you know, basically housekeeping so that you have the, uh, you have the paper trail, you've got the audit trail for what took place. And Actually, one I'll flow. ask you, one I will ask you about while we're in this, uh, I, I see a very strong mix between people who tend to put a lot of their error handling in the flow of, of the original control flow and a number of other people who would, in preference, build all of their error handling into uh, package events. And to, to me, doing that seems to give you a cleaner uh, view of the data flow, but, uh, oh, sorry, of the control flow, but I just wondered if you had any uh, strong preference there. Well, the, uh, the the real advantage that I see, and I, and I will get back to that point, I'm not, I'm not evading you, uh, the real advantage that I see of using template packages is largely that whatever standard you come up with, you can implement it once and then reuse it consistently. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a way to make sure that once you have all of the things that a, a package that works within your framework needs to have, that all of the packages from that point on will have it as well. Mm. As far as the uh, uh, where to put that auditing logic, that housekeeping logic, I honestly don't have a personal preference. When I was first working with SSIS, 
I would put it in the event handlers for the cleaner control flow, just as you were saying. Yes. So pre-execute, post-execute, you know, you hide it out of the way. It's not cluttering up your main design surface. But I found that it's very rare that I'll be working on these SSIS projects alone. Uh, even though I'm working for ConfigureSoft now, uh, I joined them back in July, and before that I've been uh, an independent development consultant for the better part of five years. So I would always go in and work with the development teams of my consulting clients. And I would find that most of the people on those teams were not experienced with the technologies that, that we were using. So my consulting engagements would basically be build something and build the team while you're doing it. So yeah. it you know, works very well for me. Mm-hmm. And the problem that I ran into was that if the housekeeping was inside the event handler, no one else knew that it was there. Yeah. And it, it's certainly it's not in your face, and, and that's the... Uh, yeah, I think that's the downside of that, and uh, that's why I wondered if you had any specific guidance either way, because I I do see both sides of that argument. Yep. Well, so what what I've done what I've done probably for the last year, year and a half or so, is basically uh, have gone the opposite direction and put everything in the control flow because it mm-hmm. is in your face. Yeah. Uh, there's there's a trade-off there between the the visual cleanliness and something that is self-documenting and discoverable. And self-documenting is a big recurring theme of mine. So yes, I, I that's good. Tend and to look, go in that direction. and again, any programming language that it involves uh, involves an eventing model. Thing, things are not so easy to follow what's going on. Uh, I think by comparison with something where the entire control flow is right there in front of you. But uh, but but certainly for very complicated packages. I must admit, it does remove an awful lot of clutter out, out of the package. Yeah, and I've, I actually have a, a, a few more things that I'd like to say on that topic before we mm. move on as well. So um, uh, one of the things that I would love to see in future versions of the SSAS tools is some way to have those events be more in your face. Yeah. If you take a look at, uh, at working with a traditional development environment, uh, the, the logic that you're building tends to be much more complex than what you put in an SSIS package. Mm. You know, for the most part, it's a generalization. But having, uh, having everything in text files where you can easily skim through the code, everything is right there, it's a much flatter surface to look at without all of the dialogues and and so on and so forth that mm-hmm. SSIS gives you with its visual designers. I think that in order for the SSIS tools to keep up with the enterprise capabilities of the SSIS runtime and platform, there needs to be more effort put into having them be self-documenting, discoverable, uh, optimized, and, and just easier to work with from a, a developer's perspective. Most of the uh, Most of the complaints that I hear about SSIS are not related to the core functionality of the platform they're related to the designers inside visual studio yeah no that's so, a, that's a fair point that's good Thane, next on your list was about using oladb connections one of the, one of the things yep one of the things that i see come up on the uh uh the msdn news groups for ssas quite a bit is you know basically which type of connection manager should i use should i use uh, OLADB connections, should I use SQL Server connections, should I use ADO.NET connections, and 
uh, a lot of the questions come down to uh, performance. You know, which one is going to get me the best performance? Performance here, performance there. From my experience, performance is not the question that you want to be asking here. And obviously, if you're working with billions and billions of records, you really need to spend a lot of time uh, doing your performance tuning and figuring out what works best in your environment. Uh, but nine times out of ten, you're not dealing with billions and billions of records. You're dealing with, with tens or hundreds of thousands or maybe tens or hundreds of millions. And in those situations, the, the five to ten perform, uh, five to 10% performance improvement that working with, say, for example, a SQL Server destination might give you often is outweighed by the productivity and consistency that you get from using uh, OLADB connections consistently inside your packages. So the advantage that I see is that when you are working with different data flow controls, or sorry, the data flow components, uh, what you will see is that some of them only work with OLADB connections. So that means that at some point, if you're using those those uh, transformations, you actually need to have OLADB involved. And if you have uh, multiple connections going against the same data source, and some of them use uh, one connection, another one uses another connection, not only do you have uh, uh, additional overhead against the data source, you also have the additional maintenance involved in updating your package, keeping those connections in sync, and so on, you know, two different configurations driving those yeah. two different connection strings. And uh, beyond that, you'll also see that you have uh, uh, you also see that you have inconsistencies in the way that things like parameterized queries are handled. So if you're using uh, the execute SQL task in your control flow, if you use a SQL Server connection or ADO.NET connection, what you will find is that you have uh, named parameters. So when you're building up a parameterized query, you have named parameters to, to specify what values or what variables are going into place. If you use OLADB, you have positional parameters. And if you're using OLADB consistently throughout, then you have uh, one technology to worry about, one set of techniques to use. Uh, you get great performance. You know, it may not be optimal, but I have packages uh, that are that are pulling uh, two, three, four million rows per minute through relatively complex data flows uh, using an OLADB source, OLADB, OLADB destination. Uh, great performance all around. And I've yet to run into a situation where the load window that was available for me and the volume of data that I was pulling through uh, didn't uh, fit wonderfully using OLADB. Yeah. So never run I've, I've seen very few issues with the performance of the OLADB connections. The uh, I, I do uh, have one client that has a, a particularly large set of tables that they're uh, importing data in or, um, at, at an extraordinary rate. In that case, you know, you, I, I could imagine that there might be an argument there, but uh, in, in general, yeah, I mean, the, the, the difference you're talking about is, is not going to be the difference in the package. Um, and there's, there's, there's actually one more thing here that bit me very on in my, uh, in my uh, SSIS days. It's uh, mm -hmm. sort of a quick story, if I may. So back in the old days, uh, I had done my research saying, you know, the SQL Server destination gives you the best performance and, and sort of took that as my mantra, you know, okay, well, you know, SQL Server, we're all happy, we love SQL Server, we're going to use this for all of our data destinations. And uh, was able to get, get a, uh, 
confirmation from the client up front, yes, you know, the, the only deployment scenario that we will ever need to support is when the SSAS packages are running on the destination server. You know, that will always be where the packages are running. Well, that's great because that's a requirement of the SQL Server destination. And when we moved into uh, full development, you know, moving from me doing prototyping on my machine and moving out into the larger development organization, all of a sudden, nothing worked. And it took me a couple hours to figure it out, but the problem was, in order to do any sort of real development, they needed a data set that was too large to work on an individual developer's machine. So even though in the production environment, these packages would always run physically on the destination server, in the development environment, they did not. So we had a disconnect there and had to go back uh, to the drawing board a bit and and just one more reason to, to use OLADB consistently, great performance, flexible, uh, makes you need, makes it so that you don't need to worry about uh, uh, some of the other details. That's great. And next on your list, you're saying only configure package variables. Right. So this, this is something that is a, a, a technique that has served me very well as well. And uh, one of the things that I love about SSAS is how easy it is to pull out the, the things that are not core to the package functionality, things that are related to the, the environment in which the package runs, uh, or you know things that you would normally think of as, as command line parameters or execution flags, for example. Pull them out, store them in a configuration. So maybe SQL Server database, maybe an XML file, maybe a, an environment variable or the registry. I tend to be, be preferential towards XML configurations because then I can have a strictly uh, file system deployment and yeah. makes the deployment story very easy. Yeah, so I find exactly the same. Yeah, and the other thing is it's easy enough to, if you really need to, to write a little configuration app that, that writes out the configuration for people if they want to modify it anyway, if, if you have people that are XML terrified. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> So I'm actually uh, this is I'll bet this is a wheel that gets reinvented over and over again. But <laughs> one of my uh, one of my sort of side projects for work these days is to develop a multi-project version of the the package installation wizard, mm-hmm. uh, sort of using that that workflow. But I've got uh, SSAS installations. You know what what I would think of as an SSAS project that's actually made up of uh, maybe. 20 or 30 different Visual Studio projects where the, the deployment wizard doesn't help you, but I still want the ability to have uh, a GUI you know, MSI-type installer where uh, a, a systems administrator, but not necessarily someone who knows integration services, can pick a deployment location, enter values for those configuration files, and so on. So yeah. Interesting to see that it's a, a, a common theme coming up. Yes, no, but, I see that. Well, I think I think it's just probably the the fact that most people weren't too bad with editing things like ini files and things ini files years ago. But uh, it, it is frustrating if they go in and edit an XML file and subtly change uh, something so that no longer is it a valid XML file. It, it's very easy to do that, and uh, yeah. I, I think that's the thing that then causes people some pain. But, but yeah, as I said, it's very it's easy once it's an XML file to to build a little configuration tool for the the app anyway if you really need one. So, yeah, absolutely. And I've uh, I've I've felt that pain of of having someone edit that uh, that configuration file 
you know, the, the thing that I've seen three or four times is, is they hit S at the yes. end of the document instead of hitting control S. And, uh, <laughs> I've actually, uh, built a, a little utility that I call Pac-Man for package manager, mm-hmm. uh, for doing bulk updates against, uh, arbitrary sets of SSIS packages just using the .NET object model and, and, uh, one of the things that I've put in there recently is uh, a bulk bulk package validation, so that when when I hand my packages over to QA, uh, they're usually the ones that screw things up because they're very tech savvy in their minds, but they don't really know a lot of the specific technologies that we're using, yeah. like XML, and giving them something that they can just click on a button and have it go out and validate all of the packages and the environment in which they're deployed makes it. Uh, uh, it, it allows us to find errors early on as opposed to letting the packages run for four hours or eight yeah. hours before they are aware there's an error. Yeah, indeed. Now, one well, that might, might be a little controversial is, is the next one on your list. Well, wait, hold on, hold on. Hold oh, on. I, haven't have actually, I haven't actually gotten to the bullet at all yet. So, okay. So, there, so only package variables. There's a, a, a real reason for this, and if you take a look inside one of those XML configuration files, you'll notice that there is an XPath expression basically saying what part of the package you want to configure. So it'll start off with the package, then it'll go down into whatever it is that contains the uh, the value that you want to configure. And uh, let me actually pull up one here right now. So uh, an example. So we've got uh, slash package dot variables, you know, square bracket user, blah, 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 dot properties, square bracket value. And if if you are going against uh, a variable that's defined at the package scope, the, the path for that property is always going to be the same. But if you have uh, a configuration that is explicitly setting a property on a, uh, a task, for example, and that task is then moved to be inside a different container, like uh, you're, you're reworking your package logic and you put it inside a sequence container, for example, the path that's stored inside your configuration file can change. And it's sort of one of those subtle errors that you wouldn't think. Normally, when you think of of addressing a programmatic object, you don't think that its location, its graphical location on a design surface is going to impact functionality. But because of the the containership that's built up uh, inside the the package hierarchy, so you've got the package as a container, sequence containers or for each loops or whatever as containers, the the tasks as containers themselves with the task host container that wraps them and so on, uh, that you really need to be aware of what you're configuring. So what I've found uh, works to great effect is having all of the configurations, all of the external values that you're setting uh, will actually be set to variables defined at the package scope and then anything else that needs to actually use that configured information will have its properties set with expressions that are based on those variables. Yeah, that, that's a great tip, actually, because it, it also means that it's one very obvious place that you've got to find all the things that are configurable as well. The yep, and that is that is 100%, and normally if I have this up in a PowerPoint slide, that's actually one of my bullets, so I'm glad, yeah. that, you, uh, glad that you mentioned it. Yeah, that's good. Well, the next one was you, uh, possibly uh, topical or uh, questionable. You were saying one target table per package. This is actually something that I got from uh, uh, the Kimball Group's excellent book, the Microsoft Data Warehouse Toolkit, and it's one of his basic guidelines for keeping things simple. Uh, and 
I found that when going through and building uh, a simple project, regardless of what your uh, uh, what your development tool is, VB, C Sharp, Java, SSIS, uh, the original uh, or the initial thing that a lot of people do is they think, well, this is going to be simple, this is going to be uh, just this one thing that I'll use once and then throw it away, and they just lump everything in one place, all the code is in the form, as it were, and uh, and then down the road, if anything real happens with that code, they need to go through, uh, rip it, replace it, gut it, and build it the way it should have been built in the first place. I tend to go through, uh, you know, because of lessons that I've learned and scars that I've earned, as it were, uh, I tend to go through and over-engineer even the little pet projects that I know no one else but me will use. So if I'm building something in .NET, I've got a UI project, I've got uh, a DLL implementing the, the business logic or whatever the logic is and whatever else is needed, and it always serves me well. I never regret taking that step. With SSIS, I see a lot of people say, well, you know, we only need to do this one thing. You know, this is all that we need to do. So, or these two or three things. We're just going to lump them all into this one package. And then that package tends to grow and grow and grow and turn into this big unmaintainable nightmare. Whereas if people stepped back and realized, you know, this is a development tool. Let's actually work with this and do things the, uh, do things the right way and have each package be modular have it set up so that there is uh, a single destination table for each package and then have a, a master package using the execute package task that drives the logic to coordinate all of these, uh, you end up with much more consistency, you know, just sort of uh, pointing back towards the template packages. Uh, it's, it's much easier to maintain. And whenever you're editing something, the, the amount of regression testing that you need to do tends to be smaller as well. So it's, yeah. it's something that some people have pushed back on. It's like, well, you know, there's always this case or that case. And you, know, you have to be prag- pragmatic. You have to look and see, you know, is, is any dogma worth enforcing for its own sake? But uh, nine times out of ten, uh, following this one target table per package guideline is going to give you fewer headaches and much easier to maintain packages or set of packages, uh, especially as your project grows. Yeah. And and look, less headaches are a good thing. Uh, it's interesting to note you're saying that because I must admit, often uh, building code, I do find myself, uh, even if I'm building code, as you say, for one-off things, I, I almost wonder if I'm being some somewhat anal retentive or something. But I I do tend to build the code as though I'm going to keep it forever, you know, in in many cases, and uh, and in the number of times that I end up reusing it in some way is just amazing. I mean, it just happens all the time. So whereas I, I endlessly run into sites where I'm looking at code or looking at uh, reviewing things, and I look at something and it's just you know, nonsensical names or all these things, and people say, "Oh, yeah, but but you know, I was I was only just going to use it the once." So yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's sort sort of like uh, 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 I blogged yesterday, so I, I don't blog often these days. The real world keeps getting in my way, but I actually blogged yesterday on the uh, the importance of pain when it comes to learning. You know how real world experience is important to. You know, oh, employers yes. or, or whatever, largely because the lessons that you learn through your own pain are the lessons that will never leave you. Although uh, I, I have a friend that says that experience is uh, the idea that the next time you make a mistake, you just remember that you'd previously done it. <laughs> the <laughs> argument was it doesn't stop you making it the same mistake again. But anyway, the 
Uh, next one was annotate like you mean it. So I, I've been called a comment Nazi from time to time. Ah. Uh, if I'm writing traditional code, uh, I tend to have two or three lines of comments for every line of, uh, of co- actual executable code that I write. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing you've heard of test-driven development. I, I believe, or sorry, test-first development. Yes. I believe in comment-first development, where if you can't write it in English or whatever your native language is, you can't write it in code. So I will always go through and outline the logic that I'm about to implement in my own words before I do it in whatever syntax I'm writing at the, for that day. And people tend to forget that SSAS packages are code. You know, this is a, yes. a, a piece of executable logic, and you need to annotate it. You need to add the comments. You need to describe what you're doing. And what I believe is that every task and every component in the data flow needs to have a comment. It needs to have something describing what it is and what it does. And some people would argue that, well, if you give them descriptive names, it can be self-documenting. And I won't argue with that. Often that is true. Uh, but I think that for any but the most trivial package, having the additional annotations to describe what it means right there on the design surface, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. And you're never going to be the only person in that package. So making things easier for the next guy means that uh, you're not going to be that guy that everyone complains about once uh, once you move on to another project. Yeah. Yes, and, no, you're uh, definitely preaching to the choir on that one. So, uh, <laughs> but um, there's, wait, wait, wait. There's, there's, yes. there's one other thing that I that I found to great effect. I've done a couple presentations on SSAS over the last couple of weeks, so my my speaking schedule has sort of spiked this month, <laughs> and. Uh, for the for the demonstrations, a lot of people will look at packages that I built in the data flow and will say, "Oh, you have the select statement that you're using to extract from the source system as an annotation in your design flow surface. What mm-hmm. a great idea!" And this is something that I've I've always agonized about because most of the time for 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 any complex package. The select statement is actually built by an expression that has a couple different inputs coming into it. Yeah. So actually going going through and finding out what that uh, what the select statement is involves a multi-step process. You know, what variable yeah. are we storing the expression in? What you know, blah blah blah. So you see where I'm going there. So mm-hmm. what I will what I will tend to do is I will tend to uh, edit the variable, go in, evaluate the expression, copy the output from the expression, or, or sometimes the expression itself if that's significant, and then paste that into an annotation, color it green to make it you know obvious that it's a comment and not anything yep. functional, and drop it there on the on the uh, data flow surface. And the obvious advantage of this is that it is self-documenting. It looks great. Yep. Uh, the obvious downside is it's obsolete the moment that you put it on the, on the surface because there's yeah. no way to keep the two of them in sync. In sync, And yeah. I, was, I was wondering what you thought of that practice. I, I had not come across it before, but I must admit I quite like that because I do find them endlessly drilling into things to, to find out what's going on there. Um, it, in fact, it would be interesting if there was some way in the debugging environment to uh, dynamically set the annotation. Uh, uh, And you could actually expose quite a bit more um, while the package was was actually executing. That would be kind of interesting too, but nonetheless. (laughs) Yes, nonetheless, or maybe have an annotation based on an expression. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's the sort of thing I was I was wondering where you could uh, set that. Even even if yeah, that's right, an expression of any type that that would be fine. Or or even if it was just some fixed variable per component or something. But uh, anyway, yeah, maybe it, maybe in two thousand ten. Yeah, <laughs> or eleven or whenever. Yeah, exactly. You had avoiding row-based operations and thinking sets. I think uh, in pretty much everything to do with SQL Server, that's usually sound advice. Well, when you do uh, when you do training and consulting, uh, so you 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 get used to beating the set-based drum. And uh, for for me at least, I get used to most people not listening to me, so I keep on beating that drum. So even though everybody knows that for for SQL Server development, you want to, you know, when possible, when appropriate, avoid cursors and do everything with set-based logic, you know, because you let the optimizer take care of all the work. The same sort of thing applies in SFAS, but people aren't as familiar with the environment, so it's not obvious to a lot of people what's set-based and what's not. So uh, there there are uh, a set of data flow components uh, that do row-by-row operations, uh, the two obvious ones are non-cached lookups, where you're actually going out and hitting the database once for every row that's passing through your data flow, and uh, the OLADB command transformation, where you know realistically, you know that's what it's there for. It's there so that you can run uh, an update, a delete, uh, run a stored procedure once for every row that's passing through. They're very, very powerful tools, but you need to understand that when you use them for anything but the most trivial data flow your performance will suck. So hitting the database once, you know, for 100 million rows that are passing through your data flow every morning, that's going to, you know, increase your execution time by an order of magnitude. And often what you actually end up need to doing to support that is stepping outside of the uh, the capabilities of the data flow and working instead with a temp table or worker table where you can do a set-based bulk insert into that table in the database and then do a set-based uh, update operation is the most common one once you get back to the control flow. So, so uh, yeah. I, f- I find myself doing that all the time, uh, and where I, I see an awful lot of packages that, you, as you say, are developed sort of with row-by-row logic, and 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 that's that is very frustrating because in many many situations that that could be completely avoided. In fact, it's um, interesting that in the SQL courseware, um, talking trainer things, I mean, years ago they tended to remove the discussion of cursors and or pull it out into an appendix. So they they really were trying to enforce that. But what what I found quite intriguing is that nearly every example I ever saw of triggers in the courseware tended to have triggers that would only work on single rows. And, uh, (laughs) And when I see... You know, there are so many examples where I, I, particularly people migrating from Oracle, where they tend to write single row oriented curses. Uh, probably the biggest mistake I find with people writing curses is, is literally that they, they tend to write ones that would only work with a single row at a time and have single row type logic in it. Um, and another one that I came across uh, in the last few weeks that was just completely amazing is a, a guy who was trying to sequence the data uh, via a date time and he realized that the date time wasn't, uh, fine, 
finely precision, enough precision in it. He was concerned that uh-huh. multiple rows would end up with the same date and time. So he literally put a wait for in the trigger, uh, to, to force it to take longer. And, uh, and, and this thing was iterating through like 500,000 rows and it literally added seven hours to the processing time. <laughs> Just. And, and, and did you, did you get the, uh, did you get people saying, oh, well, SQL Server is slow. It's slow. When, uh, when you yes. came in there. Oracle never did this. <laughs> it's just completely incredible. But anyway, yes, that was the best. That was the winner of the uh, trigger of the year uh, <laughs> out of all the ones I've seen in recent times. That's yeah, just and that's, classic uh, stuff. That, yeah, and that, that's an excellent, uh, excellent observation about the old uh, SQL courseware uh, relegating cursors to the appendix. Mm. Uh, I'd honestly never thought about it that way, but uh, now that you mention it, I wonder if if the good practices that I got into back in the day. Uh, were because of that, if that played a, a, a subconscious role in my development. Cause, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, look, I'm sure it did. Uh, but as I said, the thing I, I couldn't get over is, is still, if you look at most of the examples in the courseware where they had triggers, they, they still have things like, you know, set at country equals, <laughs> you, know, was, uh, you know, I, you know, inserted dot something or other. And you think, wow, okay. <laughs> well, it's a lot, a lot of times though doing, uh, Doing an update based on a join or a delete based on a join, it's something that is, uh, you know, it's not difficult, but it's a more complex form of the yeah. of the SQL syntax than a lot of people are used to. And certainly, the people that write the courseware should be aware of it. But mm. but uh, I've seen a lot of this in the real world as well, where you know, the, where the trigger only works on a single row, and and the good developers, you know, put, putting that in quotes, of course, the good developers will have logic up front to uh, check the number of rows modified and just roll back the trans. Transaction uh, if more than one is being modified, and then they need to serialize their. In- yeah, okay. So yeah, next. Okay. Yeah. The actually, that's probably a good point where we'll sort of take a break, and uh, we'll come back shortly after the break. All right, that sounds great. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Down Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sqldownunder.com. Welcome back from the break. Uh, what I'll get you to do, Matthew, as again, as per usual, just anything you're willing to share about uh, where you live and and uh, sports or hobbies or interest, and anything we can know about you. Well, uh, one of the things that I that I like to think of myself is uh, uh, an evangelist for the things that I love. So you know, do a lot of speaking on uh, uh, SQL Server, talking about that, and so on. But on the other side of my life. Uh, I'm a dedicated fan of Manowar, which is this amazing heavy metal band. You know, they're the, the kings of metal. They've been around since the early 80s. Uh, very loud, very, uh, very powerful, very inspirational music. And, uh, one of the things that I will do, uh, when, when possible is actually follow Manowar around the world touring. So, I've seen them play like at TechEd 2006, believe it or not, or 2005 rather. They were uh, playing in Orlando the night the show opened, so I was able to get down and see them Excellent. then. 
See them in the U.S., there's, you know, three, four, five hundred people in the crowd. See them in Germany, there's 30, 40, 50,000 people in the crowd. And being at the front of that crowd in the front row, uh, very powerful experience. So definitely, uh, definitely something that I would recommend anyone listening, check out their music, pick up the album Kings of Metal and, and, uh, and see what it has to offer. It's great stuff. <laughs> Excellent. Actually, I always amazed the uh, interest in music, or pe- particularly people that play and things, uh, in in relation to all technical pursuits. It's always being discussed. I, I think there there has to be a definite uh, connection between the creative side of both. I, I think there there really has to be. And uh, a, a quick little shout out to Rob Wiley from uh, Red Rock in New Zealand, who uh, again, it's great to have a passion. He was he was telling me the other day that he has a Neil Young Friday. And uh, that's where he uh, works at home on a Friday, most uh, most Fridays, and just puts on Neil Young really, really loud <laughs> all day. So yeah, I, I I learned back in college that uh, the louder, the harder, the faster the music was, the 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 more open my mind was both to accepting new information when I was studying, and uh, to output new information when I actually you know need to be developing something to 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 use the information that I have and. I get, I'm very, very fortunate that I work from home most days and, uh, I've got, uh, the big speakers in my office. I close the door, I turn up the volume and, and really gets me in the zone like nothing else does, much more productive yeah. that way. That's excellent. In fact, it, it's interesting to note that I, I have a, a friend who runs a consulting business and one of the rules in the office is he absolutely hates people working with headphones or music or anything like that. And we were having a discussion the other day about whether that's actually productive or not. And one of the things I find is that I literally can't write code well in, in a very quiet room. I, I think it's that every little noise then distracts you or something. Uh, where I find even if I have a TV on and it's sort of running, I might not even be watching it, but but I can actually write and concentrate better if that's the case, which you'd think is sort of counterintuitive, but I I, I honestly think it's to do with uh, small distractions. Yeah, and I, I would certainly not want to work for uh, for your friend's consulting company, so I would, <laughs> I would uh, not be earning my wage if I were working in a very quiet <laughs> environment. <laughs> there you go. Well, we were next one on your list uh, was you said also to avoid asynchronous transforms. Right. I suppose first up, we need to define for people what an asynchronous transform is. Well, basically, inside the SSIS data flow, there are two or two and a half different types of uh, of transformations. Uh, first of all, there are synchronous transformations. Uh, lots of different ways to define it, but I'll, I'll choose two of them, where a synchronous transformation produces the same records that it inputs or that it, that it consumes. Uh, another way to think about it is... Or variations of the same row. Well, Variations of the same row? Well, it's, it's the same row, although the data may be modified. If, if yeah. you look at, if you look at the underlying data buffer, you know, look at, you think, for example, of the derived column transformation, where the derived mm-hmm. column transform is a synchronous transform, and you think, well, this yeah. isn't producing the same row, it's got these additional columns. But yeah. when, when SSAS is going through to create the metadata or define the metadata for the data flow, any column that gets added at any point through the execution of a given memory buffer, you know, where the data is stored under the hood, uh, it will actually allocate that space up front, and it won't use it up front, but the space is always set aside. And yeah. 
the advantage of that, which is sort of the, the other definition of synchronous here, uh, the advantage of that is that synchronous transforms basically just do pointer math. The transform is sitting there and it's, it's walking its pointer over the records in the, in the buffer. It's not actually copying any data. It's not actually moving anything around, which means that it's incredibly fast. Uh, an asynchronous transform, on the other hand, is one that actually produces new rows separate from the ones that it consumes. And to do this, it will have uh, its own dedicated memory buffer so that memory will actually, or the records will actually need to be copied from one location in memory to another location in memory when this transform executes. Yeah. There are two, two different types of asynchronous transforms. There are fully blocking and partially blocking. A partially blocking transform, you know, look at the, uh, look at the union all transform as an example. Uh, it will actually start producing new records as soon as it has consumed the records to, to produce. So you can have, uh, both input and output going on at the same time. Uh, a fully blocking asynchronous transform will not produce any output records until all of the input records are consumed. So look at the sort or aggregate transforms. Uh, and the, the obvious downside of this is that if it can't produce any records until all of these records are consumed, then everything needs to be stored in memory or even worse, spooled to disk before the data flow can continue which means that for uh, large data flows and, you know, meaningful, interesting data sets, uh, this will provide uh, unacceptable performance. So, yeah. uh, and memory usage, I imagine. Yep, a absolutely. So, so you, yeah. can, you can bury your server very, very quickly. And I found that you, you, you tend to run into uh, memory limitations uh, uh, before anything else, but it's usually the performance itself uh, that is the, the the big danger sign. So, well, it, it ran great in dev. It ran great in test. Well, you know, of course it did. You're only running a thousand records through at a time, but uh, uh, performance goes downhill very quickly. Yeah, yeah. I heard an interview with Donald Farmer recently, and he was saying uh, an example of an asynchronous one. Of course, is simple things like the data sources themselves, by their nature, are are asynchronous. And, and that's, that's sort of inherent in that the data source must have its own memory buffer. So uh, yeah. e even though the, the MSDN books online and so on are very, uh, very imprecise and very inconsistent in describing and coming up with a concise definition for uh, synchronous and asynchronous transforms, the best place that I've seen that talks about this is actually Donald Farmer's book. And it's not a general SSAS book, but back around the, uh, the, the beta 2 time frame, uh, Mr. Farmer wrote a book on SSAS scripting. So I forget what the fin final title of the book was, but if you search on Bookpool or Amazon for it. Uh, I, I know it well, actually. It's the Rational Guide to Scripting SQL Server Integration Services. Okay, I, and, uh, so I, I know that well because I've, this year I've uh, completed two books for Rational Press, and uh, Don, Donald's were other ones that were being sold in the same same group. Uh, in fact, I should note that uh, I finally have uh, a SQL CLR integration book. Uh, I noticed started shipping today, so I, I have no idea why it's taken so long up to this point. It uh, feels like I finished it a long, long time ago, uh, but I, I did start getting notifications today uh, from various shipping things that it's finally shipping. So there is a, a rational guide to SQL Server CLR integration 
that I finally have it out. But uh, in that same series, uh, which uh, which I really like, I might add, The Irrational Guide, it's not just because I've been writing for them. I really quite like the format where you have to describe in sort of less than 224 pages and not large pages. You have to describe the topic well. And it just it just means you don't have room for fluff or... You, you really have to be to the point in what you're writing. And I really enjoyed uh, Donald's book on scripting SSIS. Yep, and I, I agree. And I, I would go so far as to say that whether or not you plan on ever writing script code for SSIS, that's a book that people who want to know more about the platform should read because just the, the, the context in which he is writing it, the angle from which he's looking at things, uh, he sheds a light on uh, you know, like the, the, the nature of, of the data flow, you know, on, on the fact that it's not actually synchronous or asynchronous transforms. It's the outputs of the transforms that are synchronous or asynchronous. Uh, and, you know, just little details like that that you need to know when you're writing that code that plugs in that most, most uh, uh, coverage simply does not uh, go into so so I, yeah, I, I, i've told people the same thing about the uh, the service broker book in the same series oh, I, I love uh, by roger roger, roger, roger walters. walters book uh, who was a previous guest on the show but uh, uh, again the, the thing i love about that is there's descriptions of things like uh, you know people say what's the difference between a dialogue and a conversation and of course it's only the product manager that's able to come back and say well actually we're thinking about having other sorts of conversations such as a monologue you know, and all of a sudden it's oh okay <laughs> you know, that that makes great sense but it yeah it, it just gives you insights that are not otherwise available Absolutely, and, and just as, as a brief aside, if you could convince Roger to come on and talk about the uh, the master data management stuff that he's working on now that he's moved uh, away from Service Broker, uh, I would love to hear him speak on that. Uh, he and I had a chance to catch up at TechEd this year, and uh, I know that whatever he's working on is going to be interesting and well done, and the, uh, the master data management space is something that I think is going to be more and more important uh, to business intelligence where the cleanliness of the data and the stewardship that goes into the data uh, is driving the quality of the BI platform. So it's, yeah. it's something that, you know, right right now I'm just, you know, keeping my ears open uh, and there's not a lot of chatter coming out. But uh, No, in fact, very. I've had a client asking me about details about it and I've seen very little published at all. Well, uh, in fact, I did see Roger myself, yeah, a few weeks ago at the uh, the past conference, a sequel past conference in Denver. And uh, but yeah, I'll be in Seattle in a few weeks. I might uh, might try and chase him up, and we'll see what we can do. That would be great. Okay, now next one on the list. You said really know your data, really, <laughs> really, really. So this is this is probably the single most important thing. I should have put it up at the top of the list, but if if it weren't. Uh, if we didn't do at least semi-technical stuff first, people would tune out. So the things that will cause your packages to break and the things that will cause your projects to fail are not technical things. It is the lack of knowledge of the source system, understanding not just what data comes from what fields, 
but understanding the dynamic nature of the data. You know, what does an update look like? How is an update reflected across these various tables? Uh, you know, uh, what user interfaces or what batch processes are going against the data uh, to change it? Uh, are they consistent in the way that they change it? How do you identify a change? You know, all of these questions, uh, which the, the questions are usually a lot more interesting than the answers, but the questions are things that before you start building your data flow, you really need to have answers to them, or at the very least, you need to understand which questions you don't have answers for. So, uh, one of the yeah. things. I think I, it's often imprecise, though, too. The, I mean, having the domain knowledge is really, really important, but uh, I, I think, again, the, one of the hassles there, a good example, the project I've been working on for the last week or so, um, it involves things like schools and so on. And, you know, they have rules. They say things like a school has a center code and center codes never, ever change. Well, today the guy behind me was saying, oh, we have this school where the center code has changed. And you say, hang on. <laughs> you know? And uh, so, yeah, look, they absolute, absolutely do not change, of course, except when they do. <laughs> so. and, and, and that key thing there, I, I've yet to be on a project, you know, you know, meaningfully sized SSAS project, where someone, you know, generally the person who's in charge of that source system, you know, the, the, the true domain expert will make a statement, you know, this thing never changes or this thing always behaves in this way. And, you know, we'll, we'll go back with, you know, are we sure? Are we positive? Are there any exception cases? You know, yes, I'm sure. Yes, I'm positive. No exceptions. Uh, okay, then sign here. And, you know, two months later, we're uh, pulling in more and more production data. It's like, well, you know, this has changed. Or or actually, as often as not, we run into it right away where uh, the, the nature of a BI project is such that you're looking at the data and actually paying attention to it in ways that no one else has done in a very long time. So you discover things about the data that the, uh, the domain experts may not know. But, but, yeah. but. Uh, pad, not, I shouldn't say pad, but, but keep it in mind for your project schedule. Uh, maintain a risk list just like you would for a traditional development project. Be proactive in, in communicating and documenting your assumptions and the things that, uh, that you are, uh, uh, working on based on those assumptions so that everyone, you know, both on your project team and for the project sponsors, that they understand how the information they give you and the actions that they're taking are going to impact the success of the project overall. You know, it's just a, a general project management thing, but yeah. understanding the, the, the vital importance of it for an ETL project is something that a lot of people overlook. I really quite like one of the uh, upcoming tools for 2008. We'll have a brief talk about 2008 later, but again, the tools for data profiling look really interesting in this area where uh, allowing you to get uh, a much better picture in a standalone tool of what your data actually looks like. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really waiting to see how the, uh, how the data profiling task matures. Uh, the last time that I looked at it, which I honestly think was the June CTP, I haven't looked at it in mm. July yet, I'm ashamed to admit, uh, the, uh, the UI and the documentation were very sparse, so it was something that I played oh, yes. with, but I've <laughs> never really run through its paces. Yeah, no, I, I actually sat through a session where Donald Farmer showed us how to, how it was used, and um, I must admit it was, it was fairly impressive, so. I, I do have high hopes for that. <laughs> As do I. <laughs> Indeed. You're also saying do it in the data source. So 
this ties back in to avoiding uh, synchronous transformations and avoiding row-based operations. Um, wherever possible, I, I am a firm believer that things like sorting, aggregation, joins, uh, a lot of the things that would be costly or complex to do inside your data flow, data flow, you should not do them in the data flow. You should instead do them oh, as yes. part of your source query. And I couldn't agree more. So, same thing I find in uh, even things like reporting services, uh, the, the data sources there. I, I, my preference in reporting services is is to bring back data and and literally just format it in the report. I, I I really don't like seeing complex logic inside elements of the report itself, Absolutely. and let alone sorting and you know all those sorts of things. You know, there, there's no reason you can't. Uh, have have a proc or something that you call and it just returns the data almost in the right format. Yeah. And uh, with uh, with SSIS, one thing that I will see, you know, people will come back and argue with like, well, you know, we want to be consistent, or you know, it has this this transform. Why can't we use it? Uh, not realizing, you know, the, the nature of the specific transforms. Or there's also sometimes when uh, if you're pulling information from a flat file, for example, there's not a heck of a lot that you can do in the source system, uh, even though. Yeah. Even though this is not a general uh, rule of thumb, but there are there are cases when it's actually faster to go uh, from a flat file, just straight dump into uh, a SQL table, and then do the sorting, grouping, whatever inside uh, a select statement, pulling it out of that table. Yeah. Uh, basically, taking advantage of the optimization that the SQL team has built into the platform over the years, and not trying to do it all in memory, and and really. Yeah. Uh, taking a pragmatic view, seeing what tool is going to work best for your scenario. You know, that's what you always mm. want to do. But but nine times out of ten, any time that I see someone doing sorting or aggregation inside the data flow uh, where they are pulling the information from a relational database in the first place, uh, you can usually get significant performance improvements by just updating yep. the source query and pulling yep. in only... And, and again... And again, often reduced memory requirements and so on as well, because there may well be indexes that support the appropriate order, you know, sitting underneath in the database in the first place. Yeah, I mean, that's very common. In fact, I think just as a general approach, one of the things I always love to do if I have flat files or any, any sort of external format that has any complexity, I must admit I have a real preference for just getting it into some form of table, uh, and, and then processing it in bulk, you know, inside the table. And, and just to play devil's advocate there, uh, I find myself doing the same thing, but I often question myself, am I doing this simply because uh, SQL is the tool with which I am most comfortable? Am I, am I using uh, SQL yes. as the crutch? And yes. you know, most of the time when I, when I have the time where I can actually look and see you know, what is the correct tool, the best tool for a given scenario, I have made the right choice, but... Uh, I sometimes wonder, you know, would, would this be a more appropriate place to use uh, a raw file for uh, staging information as opposed to a relational database and so on, you know, yeah. avoid the transactional overhead. But that's that's another tangent we probably don't have time for. Yes, indeed. Now, I'll skip over the next one just for a moment because another one on your list actually says don't use data sources. Yes, and, and notice that we have a capital D and S there. So, the, the data sources that I'm talking about here are not the source components. It's not the source system because although, honestly, your performance would be much better if you could just avoid that source data. Um, what I'm talking about here is the, the data source object that is included in the SSAS projects inside Visual Studio. 
and I was I was doing a presentation uh, on SFAS for my local chapter of the ACM, the uh, uh, Association of Computing Machinery, a couple weekends mm-hmm. ago, and yep. uh, was basically going over this point and and the, the analogy leapt into my mind that this is dangling there like candy. Look, here's a place where you can define a connection once and easily reuse it anywhere inside your project and uh, it automatically updates. It does all these great things. There's tool support for it. It's simple. It's easy. It's candy, but it's poison candy. It's like, you know, and it's Halloween, so we have uh, we have a, a seasonal or topical tie-in here as well because the data sources are not anything to do with integration services. They are a Visual Studio-only tool, and because of that, if you are using uh, a data source as part of your project to uh, maintain consistent connection strings across your packages, once you actually go to deploy things, you have no mechanism to get your connection strings up to date because um, uh, configurations are the appropriate tool once you deploy. And yep. in, in addition to that, because the uh, because the implementation as part of the Visual Studio tools is so poor, if you update the connection string inside your uh, your data source definition in your project, you don't actually see those changes until you manually open up each package. You actually need to physically open up the package to have that change reflected, which if you have a master child package set up where you've got your master package that coordinates all of the other packages' execution, that means that you can have inconsistent data throughout. And to make matters worse, the data source feature inside integrations, or sorry, inside Visual Studio for the integration services project gives you the ability to define a common data source in one project and then reference it from data sources in other projects, which is you know like glowing, super sweet poison candy, where it's like, oh my goodness, I've got this complex project and here's a tool just for what I need. But to make matters worse then, not only do you need to open up the packages, in order to update the common shared data source and have those changes reflected elsewhere inside the solution, you actually need to edit the master and then open up each of the individual related ones and then open up each of the packages. And it, it's just a huge waste of time. And you can probably tell from the passion with which I'm speaking that it was my time they wasted. And the, the lesson yeah. that I've learned here is that the, the correct thing to do is use configurations uniformly and consistently across every environment. Do it for dev, do it for test, yep. do it for prod. And, uh, have that one mechanism that you use to solve this problem and just ignore the fact that there are data sources and data source views folders yeah. inside your projects because they have nothing to do with what you want to accomplish. Yeah. That actually segues nicely into the next one, where you're saying, "Look, I, you know, if it is an external thing, it, it needs to be configured." Uh, that, that's a, a really great thing. And in fact, when I look at uh, DTS packages where people are trying to migrate from 2000 to 2005, for me, the number one situation where people are needing to go back and edit the previous packages is because of embedded connection strings and things. Yep, and and uh, I've often been been known to say that. Uh, I would sooner chew off my own mouse finger than, than work on a DTS project. I hated DTS. You know, I had wanted nothing to do with it for anything but like the <laughs> import-export wizard. So it was a simple tool for solving simple problems. Uh, and, you know, solving simple problems is boring. 
so I have a lot of people uh, talk to me about, well, you know, we're using DTS for this and that and the other thing. We want to use SSAS. Uh, and, and when I'm talking to, like, local users groups or local organizations uh, uh, about doing lectures for them, the topic that I get asked to speak about the most is, you know, in the context of SSIS, is deployment. And, you know, as a developer, you know, what could be more boring than deployment? It's like, oh, let, let yeah. someone else handle that. But uh, the, the key thing to have a good deployment story, which SSIS, you know, its deployment story isn't the best. There's not a lot of robust, complete tools for the, 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 the complex environments where SSIS excels. Yeah. So this I was really hoping for detailed, I was really hoping for detailed MS build integration, for example. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, well, we'll cross our fingers. Hopefully it will come. Uh, but, yeah. but, the, but the key thing to have a smooth deployment is to make your, your packages location independent or location agnostic. So basically that anything where your package ref, uh, references an external resource, that that information is not stored in the package. And be it a connection string, uh, 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 execution flags, uh, sometimes the select statement that you're using to, to pull, out of the, uh, pull out of the source system, anything that is part of the, the logical interface between your package and the outside world, that needs to be configured. You need to store that information outside the package. And then as you're moving from environment to environment, you have a smooth, seamless, uh, smooth, seamless uh, transition. And the good thing is there's tons of tools to support it. All of the tools that you need yep. to do it are there. The bad thing is they're not leaping out at you. You know, they're not the, they're not the candy on the shelf like the data sources are. Instead, you actually need to pay attention and, and know the platform and actually spend the time to find out what works best. And I think that's where the community comes in because the, the tools aren't really the best in discovering the best practices currently. Yeah, now that's that's very important. In fact, I see it as one of the key differences or key enhancements in SSAS compared to DTS is uh, is the visibility or, or the uh, ability to easily do configurations and things by comparison. I mean, you could do it before; it, it just wasn't as much fun. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> so. I've I've actually had uh, uh, some some very experienced SQL Server people, and I won't name any names, but uh, he's south of you right now. Uh, and uh, 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 he and I were talking, you know, just this week, or let's see, it's Wednesday. I guess it was last week. Uh, we were talking relatively recently about SSAS, and he finds it amusing that I've been this hardcore SQL guy for so many years, and now I'm just in love with this this ETL tool. And he said, well, but you know, but it doesn't even have the way to do this thing. It doesn't have a way to, to, to set the connection strings externally. It's like, my goodness, you know, your name here. Uh, and my goodness, you know, have you missed this and this and this? And, you know, got into a little mini lecture on it. But it just goes to show me that for even people who are, uh, you know, spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week in the SQL Server world, you know, who have been doing it for years and years, uh, unless they actually spend the time to look and see what capabilities, what features, and what the best practices are for them, uh, they're going to miss these important things, you know, configurations, expressions. Uh, there's very little that you can't do with these tools, uh, but it's something that a lot of people miss. In, in fact, it's, uh, it's, it's a good argument. One of the things that I suppose 
having worked as a trainer a bit, you, you tend to get in the loop of doing certifications and things endlessly. But one of the things I qu- I've always liked about the certifications is nothing to do with employment. It's just the fact that when they give you that nice list of here are all the topics you need to know about, I always find that's that's a very interesting list to go off and make sure you know about all of those different things. And uh, uh, the the BI exams are kind of interesting where I did see some statistics the other day that said uh, with the new MCITP uh, exams, the database administrators, there was something like about 2,900 worldwide. Uh, in the database developers, there were about 1,100 worldwide. Uh, but in the BI one, it was literally something like uh, just over 100. Yep, 100 in September. Yeah, people that have, have actually done uh, those exams. And uh, it, it's kind of, yeah, very interesting. It's such a small number. So, uh, and I, I wouldn't mind betting that most of the people say that it will have done all three uh, will pretty much mostly be trainers. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm certainly it'll be in interesting that to see. Just, just to yep. play devil's advocate, the uh, the the DBA and, and DBD exams have been around for two years longer than the uh, the BI exams, so they have a bit of a. Oh, that's up. true, actually. Yeah, I, I must have been. I only did them recently myself, but yeah, the uh, and I I thought the four four six exam, the uh, uh, the design one for the BI, I thought it was thought it was a reasonable coverage of a wide variety of topics. So yeah, I, I didn't mind it. Absolutely, and and perhaps with 2008 or future versions, they'll actually have dedicated ISAS or RS exams. Uh, but for now, I'm just happy that they've got the exams out there. Uh, I, I yeah. definitely use them as a focused study tool as well. Uh, if I yeah. if I need to get up to speed on a new product, I will often look at the at the prep guide for an exam on that product or exams on that product and use that as a study list and then use the yep. certification exam uh, sort of as a validation, you know, smoke check, uh, smoke yeah, test to that's see, right. you, know, you know, do I actually know enough to, to, you know, to talk about this stuff? Yeah. The last one on your list was to treat packages like code. And, uh, again, that sounds like very sound advice. Right, but it's, but it's also one of those things that people, especially people coming from a DTS environment, tend to miss. So in, in DTS, you had these DTS packages were this, this weird amorphous thing that even though you could save them off to a structured storage file or you could put them in the database, it was it was very much like the, the live database version was the only version that you ever had. You'd go in and you'd modify yeah. it in production using Enterprise Manager. It was the worst practices tool end-to-end, in, in my personal yeah. opinion, of course. Look, I, I did see that endlessly. And I also wonder, though, is was it largely because the people who were building those packages often didn't have a background where they had, say, an involvement with source code control or something like that? Well, I, I, I certainly think that that's part of it. The, the people building DTS packages were not developers. They were DBAs. And, you know, I, I don't want to get into that debate. You know, I've, I've stood on both sides of the DBA, DBD wall for, for, for years, so I'm not going to go there. Oh, sure. But, but by the same token, I, I could not now imagine doing any sort of development project without a source code control system in yeah, place. Ab- absolutely. So so what, what I find is that people who are used to that sort of from the hip, just edit it in prod and be done with it, development, they hate SSIS because... DTS made it very easy to do things the bad way. SSAS makes it very easy to do things the right way. So th- the things that I like to think of when I'm, when I'm talking about treating your packages like code uh, is, first of all, always use source code control. 
Absolutely. You yeah. know, when we were talking about pet projects earlier, um, I've got a TFS server, Team Foundation server, that I set up and run in my personal environment. If I'm making, yes. you know, a, a little utility to manage my kids' video games, it goes into source code control. So 100% yes. of the time, can't get around it. Uh, and yeah, in fact, a lot of people may not, uh, listening to the show, may not be familiar with TFS either. So Team Foundation Server uh, fits in very nicely for developers where we're dealing with Visual Studio uh, Team Suite in particular. Uh, there is also, of course, a bit of a shout-out to Maraid and Gert Drapers and so on, uh, Maraid O'Donovan, uh, with the folk at the Data Dude site, because, uh, of course, they've got the Visual Studio Team Edition for database professionals. But even separate to that... Uh, it, it has a very, very, TFS has a great source code control system as part of it. But even if that doesn't work for you, uh, certainly there are lots of third party offerings like SVN and so on. There, there are just so many that and the, the, there really is no excuse not to be using one. All right. Well, I'm, I'm going to use that to segue into a caution then. Uh, I have heard mm-hmm. anecdotal stories, and I've never seen this personally, but I've heard anecdotal stories about third party source code control providers corrupting SSIS package files. Uh, I've heard it yeah. specifically about subversion and perforce, uh, and mm-hmm. you know those are the two that leap to mind. Um, my guess is, uh, if this is happening, you know, never having seen it myself, but if it is happening, yeah. it's probably due to those repositories not properly handling the DTSS, DTSX extension as Unicode yeah. files. Uh, so yep. the way that most uh, source code repositories work is uh, other than the original version of a file, there's never actually uh, any subsequent versions stored. Only the yep. deltas are stored, and when you do a checkout or a get latest version, uh, you're getting something that is dynamically reconstructed on the fly. And if a given file is being treated as, as ASCII when it's really Unicode, uh, things can get corrupted during that, uh, during that yep. you know, parsing. I I quite liked uh, a .NET Rocks episode a little while ago when Carl Franklin was talking about old pain as well. And just the number of people that have had uh, issues in the past with things like Visual Source Safe, where they've ended up with some sort of database corruption on the source code control system, and, and they have now a mindset that says, you know, I'm not using source code control anymore. But you know, it's it's old pain, and it's just not where you should be. Yeah, and and if you have had uh, old pain with Source Safe. Look at Team Foundation Server. It is night and day. It's a world of difference. You know, it's stepping out of the Stone Age, as it were. Um, yeah. So, so to, to get back to the uh, the treating packages like code, um, uh, in in a development environment, uh, you always have your development machines. You have a test environment, then you have a production environment, and often there are variations of this. Do the same thing when you are uh, when you're working with SSIS packages. You know, so move them in a structured way using an automated deployment process, a repeatable deploy- deployment process. You know, batch files. You know, either either doing uh, file copy or using DTUtil uh, to move things around from one location to another location. Have it so that when you need to push out into production, you know 100%. You click that button. Unless the server blows up or the network goes down, it's going to work. And having that sort of confidence makes a big difference. Um, yeah. make, sure, make sure that you're testing using real data. 
So uh, one of the things that I've seen a couple times is where the data set that I get to work with in development is handed off by uh, you know the, the domain experts. And, yep, here's here this is what your production data is going to look like. Oh wow, thanks. And then it turns out when you get into production, well, it doesn't look anything like what you were given. Yeah. And there was one time when the DBA actually wrote a script to produce sample data that would look just like production or what production was supposed to look like and mm -hmm. it had no relationship to what the actual production looked like because of errors in that script. But, um, yeah. but basically, all of the development best practices, including the development lifecycle and, and uh, methodologies that you would use when building a traditional software application, all of those things apply with SSAS. Even though it's a different domain that you're working in, uh, same basic tools, same basic, uh, uh, same basic steps that you need to take, and yeah. other than really knowing your data, this is probably the most important one. Have that discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, unlike DTS, the SSAS tools give you the ability uh, to work in a best practices fashion right out of the box and uh, take advantage of that. Don't don't shoot from the hip anymore. Yeah. The only the only downside or hesitation I'd say with using real data that for testing that's obviously the the best option if you have a way of doing it. Privacy concerns nowadays are making that increasingly difficult, though. Um, and one of the real challenges is, uh, you know, if people type in small amounts of test data, it's not representative and there's a very small quantity of it. Where scrubbing real data is successful uh, sometimes, uh, and but it can be very intensive to do. Uh, another option uh, worth having a look at, too, again, in the DB Pro product, uh, other sort of data generation options that are there where you can generate a wide variety of data uh, in, in large quantities uh, fairly quickly. And, you know, that's just another option. It, my personal preference is real data whenever I can get it. But as, as I said, I just find that privacy-wise that isn't always the case anymore. Yep, it's, it's not always possible, but usually there are steps that you can take. So working with the, uh, the data generated by the DataDude tools is, uh, is, is a great step to take. Um, the, the, the little bits of data that they'll put together for you to start your initial development is only good usually for the first couple, you know, couple weeks or first couple iterations. Uh, if you can build an SSIS package that does some of the cleansing, so you, you identify those personally identifying columns or tables and, uh, have a package to munge those values, uh, you know, maybe, you know, have, have lookup tables for first name, last name, and social security number here in the States where you're simply pulling in uh, uh, meaningless data and merging it into the, the meaningful data stream. You know, so even though you're not working with 100% real data, you're sort of getting the, you know, uh, you're, you're satisfying the 80-20 rule where you're getting 80% of the value for 20% of the effort, and, uh, yeah. and, and you've got the, the right volume, and for those columns that are not deemed sensitive, uh, once you can de-identify them, you can th you then have something more to work with. And the, yeah. the one concern that I have is that any time that you deploy your packages into a production environment without having first run true production data through them, you do not yep. know what is going to happen. Oh, um, no, that's right. So, so Often, yeah. uh, many... In many cases, you'll be if you have a, a true staging environment, you'll get a chance to do that. But uh, again, yeah, not every site has that. So, all right. So we've we've reached. If 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 my list is the same as yours, uh, we've we have reached, indeed. Pardon. In fact, we're getting very very close to time. So, 
Uh, I suppose we should quickly mention uh, we had a few other items on your list that would have been good to get to, but I, I think we'll be pretty tight time-wise. Um, you did mention a few SQL Server integration myths, so maybe if we just quickly mention what, what you have in your list of myths. Well, the, uh, the the real thing that I actually wanted to uh, to mention here was just sort of put out a call to action for anyone listening. Uh, my mm-hmm. email address, if it's okay to give, uh, yep. is matthewmct at gmail.com. And what I would encourage people to do is if you have seen uh, as a trainer, as a consultant, as someone working with SSIS, you have seen people saying, you know, bad stuff. They're, they're, they're talking trash about SSIS. Uh, fire off an email to me. Uh, with a lot of the speaking that I've been doing lately, and, and October has just been a crazy, crazy month for me with tons of speaking engagements, uh, people have been coming up and saying, well, SSIS does this, SSIS does that. And the vast majority of the time, uh, it's simply a matter of the message not being out there. The thing that they say yeah. is bad is actually good, or the thing that they say is missing is actually included, or vice versa. And uh, what I would like to do but is just to take... Perhaps input. not visible. Pardon? Perhaps not immediately visible to them. Yep, a- absolutely. And, and if people come in from a DTS background, which is sort of the, the shade that is haunting uh, SSIS... People look for things in a simple way, and oftentimes they're 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 hidden in SSIS. So, so send me your myths, and I will uh, do my best to debunk them. So, uh, I have a, a a blog. I call it Bipolar because usually I talk about business intelligence stuff, but I jump uh, jump around a lot uh, depending on what uh, what I blog on from day to day. So, yeah. So uh, uh, I will start. So, where can we find your blog? Uh, my goodness, you know, to be honest with you, I always Google it, so let me, uh, let me click in, uh, Internet Explorer here. <laughs> so, it is on blogspot.com. It is by-polar23.blogspot.com. So, it may be simpler to simply Google Matthew Roach blog and go from there. Yes, uh, indeed. So, uh, so I, I am I am probably the world's worst blogger. I, I go through these horrible spurts. Some days I will do four or five posts a day. Uh, I think I blogged once in August. Uh, you know, so it's it's yeah. it's uh, it really depends on what my project schedules and my travel schedules look like. But this is That's something great. that uh, that I would like to get input from as many people as possible and use that as as uh, sort of the uh, the kickstart to start a, a an SSAS miss series of blog posts. Excellent. In fact, amongst the MVPs uh, in the SQL MVP group, there's been a bit of a discussion. They're building up a SQL Server myths overall uh, session, and I, I think that'll make for interesting material down the track. So. Yeah, well, it's it's just the most amazing product. So, in in your your intro, you mentioned that I've been falling more and more in love with SQL over the years, and I realize I wrote that text and and so on, but it's it's just so true. So, uh, the, yeah. the things that the SQL group has done just boggles my mind how great it is. So, given that all, so we'll be pretty close on time. Where will we, or where will people see you or hear from you, Matthew? Anything coming up? Uh, let's see. Uh, if you're a Microsoft certified trainer at the upcoming MCT summits in Berlin and Redmond, uh, let's see, January, February timeframe, I'm going to be presenting on SQL Server 2008, uh, developer and business intelligence topics there. I'm actually working with uh, a, a few a few colleagues of mine. We have a book proposal that's been sent in. I, I 
can't really say much more than this. Let me read the quote that I have. So I'm part of a group that <laughs> okay. intends to write the definitive book for SQL Server 1028 Business Intelligence Developers. So ba- basically, I'm, I'm working with a couple colleagues of mine from Microsoft uh, uh, to put together uh, a comprehensive uh, intermediate, uh, beginner intermediate book on SQL Server 2008 Business Intelligence. Uh, we will have final uh, approval on the outline from the editorial board by October 18th, I believe. And for, for people who are listening to this after the fact, it's currently October 31st. So there's a little bit of irony there. but Yes, indeed. Definitely looking forward to that. Uh, I'm going to be speaking at uh, a bunch of users groups in upstate New York, uh, United States, which is my home region, uh, in November and December. So uh, basically have a set of speaking engagements talking about integration services. If there is anybody in the Northeast United States who is looking for uh, a speaker, and, and, and after hearing me speak for an hour would, would consider me for that, uh, <laughs> is looking for a speaker on integration services or just general SQL Server topics, uh, drop me an email. Uh, love to talk, love to get out there and, and spread the word about this wonderful tool. So uh, for the most part, That's great. my uh, my consulting work takes me around the country and around the world so if i'm speaking for free uh like to keep it close to home if i can yeah well thank you so very much for your time today matthew it's, it's certainly been enlightening all right well thank you very much greg it's been a, a, a true we'll pleasure catch and... you at a conference sometime soon all right absolutely i will be there thank you